Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. We're going to turn together to the Word of God now, continuing our series through the book of 1 Peter. Today we're reading 1 Peter chapter 3, from verse 13 to 22, the second half of the chapter, following on from what Pastor Luke preached on last week. Feel free to follow on the screen or grab a Bible, and if you don't have a Bible with you, there is one under the seat at the end of the row, which you're welcome to use, and if you don't have a Bible at all and would like one, then please accept that as our gift to you. Because uh, we'd love you to take home a Bible to read. It's a book that will genuinely transform your life. Let's read together First Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Amen. Wedding days are a great cause of celebration. If you've been married, you know it's a very joyous day. It's a day where you pledge your undying love to the person that you love more than anyone else on the planet. And it's a day where you have many uh, emotions, your, your love goes public, your, your relationship is made official, and on that day you'd have emotions such as joy and excitement, happiness and love. However, I remember one moment at our wedding, um, for a brief moment, um, where that was filled with fear. My emotions were filled with fear. It was during our wedding vows. We got married in the year 2000, we had pretty traditional vows, uh, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to the exclusion of all others, I dedicate my life to you, I choose you. And I'd done my wedding vows, and that went fine. Got through that okay, didn't choke up or anything, it was good, ticked that box. But it got to Kim's turn to do the wedding vows. And she started doing her vows, she got about a sentence in, and then she stopped, and she started to cry. And at first I thought she was just overwhelmed by the man she was marrying, the man of her dreams, and (laughs) you can only imagine she'd be a bit overwhelmed by all of that. Uh, But as time went on, it felt like about an hour, it must have been about two minutes and she was still crying, I started to think maybe she's not crying tears of joy. 
Maybe she's got cold feet. She's having second thoughts. Maybe I'm not the man of her dreams. And I started to, to go there. Now, thankfully, she came to her senses. She realized I was the man of her dreams. She finished the vows and we've lived happily ever after. And she's in kids' church again today. And you remember the rules from last week. <laughs> Happens in the service, stays in the service. But I remember squeezing her hands at first and saying, it's all right, darling. It's all right. It's all right. And I think I started squeezing harder and harder and harder. Um, not deliberately, but I was starting to freak out. And I remember on the inside uh, really thinking, I'm not that bad. I'll change. Just say I do. Please, just do it. And let's get these vows done. But like I said, she came to her senses. But what should have been a great moment, a moment of incredible joy, was suddenly and unexpectedly hijacked by fear. As I recounted this story during the week, I thought about that and I thought there are some similarities between that moment and evangelism. Evangelism is what we're talking about today as we focus on a few verses in the second half of 1 Peter chapter 3. But evangelism is a word that comes from the Greek word eugalian, most literally translated in the noun form. Eugalian means gospel or good news. It's the announcement, proclamation, and or preaching of the gospel. It's sharing the good news of and about Jesus Christ. And I've got to say, church, it's incredibly good news. The gospel is the greatest news we can ever tell. It's the news of a God who created us in his image, gave us everything we needed to live an incredible life, and yet we decided we wanted more. We decided to rebel against God. And if our lives had a soundtrack, it would probably be Frank Sinatra's song, I did it my way. That's how we live our lives. So often we want to live our lives independent of God. And we sinned against a God who's holy in every way. And it's our sin that separates us from that God who's holy. God cannot tolerate sin. It needs to be punished. And yet God, by his great mercy, desires that none of us should perish and none of us should be separated from his love. And so in the greatest act of self-sacrificial love the world has ever seen, God left the glory of heaven and he became one of us. The creator entered his own creation, Jesus Christ, God in human form. And he came and he lived amongst us a perfect life. But at the age of 33, he died on a cross. And he died in our place for for your sin and for my sin and for all the things we've done wrong. Jesus took them upon himself and he died on the cross. And he said, as he was dying, it's finished. And the great news of the gospel is this, that even though we've been separated by God by our own sin, we've been separated from him, We can come back to him through a relationship with Jesus because when we accept what Christ did, our sin was placed on Jesus at the cross and that obstacle that separates us from God is now removed and we can come back into relationship with God. And so what we deserved, Jesus took on the cross and we get what he deserves in exchange and that is relationship with God the Father. Not only that, we can be forgiven of all our sin. We're invited to be part of God's mission God is making right what we have destroyed through our sin. The Bible says he's redeeming all things to himself. He's making all things new. And he invites you and I in Christ to be part of that mission of redemption and reconciliation as we love and serve people, as we live generous lives, as we forgive and accept and bless. We become the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. We become light, as Cybran said a moment ago, in the midst of the darkness a people set apart for his glory, a radically countercultural, attractive community who once again reflect his image through the work of the Holy Spirit to the world around us. To add to that, we have the hope of eternal life. 
with Christ, meaning that this life is not all we have. And I've got to say, I'm incredibly relieved about that because this life can be so painful at times. It can be so disappointing. But in the midst of suffering and disappointment and persecution, Peter is teaching these people who are suffering all those things to lift their eyes to the promises of God and to remind them that their eternal hope is secure in Christ and their future is incredible in Him. No more tears, no more pain, no more disappointment, no more suffering, but instead living in the presence of a perfect God, perfect peace, unending joy, surrounded by and filled with incomparable love. In verse 18 in this passage, it says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. That's glorious news. That's the gospel, that in Christ we can come back into relationship with God and the work of evangelism is to go and to tell everyone about it. And as we are transformed, like the wounded dog in the video, we go to help others to come to know Christ by pointing to him with our words and with our lives. And yet evangelism is such a scary thing for many Christians. It's right up there, isn't it? The thought of sharing our faith And the good news of Jesus is right up there with spiders and heights and public speaking and tight spaces and clowns in the list of people's greatest fears. And the question is why? Why, when we believe we have the greatest news for all mankind, would we be scared to share it? Why, when Jesus has impacted our lives through grace and forgiveness and help in the present and promise for the future, would we be hesitant to share it with others? Well, I think there's many answers to that question, um, but I think sometimes people feel guilty because they're not natural evangelists. They don't feel natural going and sharing and, and talking about Jesus with other people. And I want to kind of release the pressure valve today, to, just to tell you that not everybody is a gifted evangelist. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4 says we're all part of a body. And as we all play a different part in the body, it functions well. Some are the arms. They form an army. Some are the legs. You didn't get that, did you? They, without them, we wouldn't have a leg to stand on. Some are the eyes, some are the nose, some are the ears, which is a bit eerie. Some are the butt cheeks. And you think, I don't want to be a butt cheek, but try sitting in your seat today without them and you'll realize that they're pretty helpful. And so every part of the body has a function to play and it's the same as Christians. It says Christ has given some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, some to be teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so I want to alleviate the pressure today and tell you that not everyone is a gifted evangelist. In fact, I don't believe that evangelism is one of my primary gifts. And you may not feel it's one of yours either. And yet at the same time, I think we all have a responsibility to go and share the good news of Jesus. And so how do we go about this? Well, at a previous church I worked at several times, our senior ministers asked over an American evangelist. This guy hosted a bunch of meetings where the offering talk was typically longer than the message. And uh, in the last time he visited the church, he spoke about evangelism. And at the end of the sessions, he pulled out this little card that he had, which he thought was really, I guess, trendy and revolutionary. I thought it looked like a tracked your hand out in the 80s kind of thing. And he proceeded to tell us that all of us are evangelists. And all we need to do to be successful evangelists is to read this card out word for word to people we meet on the street. 
He said, you don't even have to look up. Just stand there and just read the card word for word and people will come to know Jesus. Now, I've got no doubt God can use uh, all sorts of different methods to reach people and I've got no issue with street evangelism. There's gifted evangelists that do it really well. But as he started to tell people, all he needs to do to uh, reach people was to read this card out. I noticed that there were three responses. Some excitable people couldn't wait to get out and use the little card, this revolutionary way of reaching the world for Jesus. Others were just scared stiff. They were terrified, thinking I couldn't possibly do that. Others just thought it was a stupid idea. And, and I was one of those. I thought it was a stupid idea. And the reason I thought it was a stupid idea is not because I've got anything um, against street evangelism, but because this guy um, simply assumed that what may or may not have worked in his culture could be transplanted into our culture on the streets of Melbourne, of which he had very little understanding, and it would magically see people come to know Christ. It was no surprise to me and many others that it bore very little or any fruit at all. So I think one of the reasons that we are terrified of evangelism at times is that we have seen the way it's been done in the past, and we don't believe that the method we've seen is in line or or in keeping with our giftings uh, or our um, gifts that God's given us and most of the time we'd be right. I think over the years we've seen many different styles of evangelism. We've got the handing out tracts to strangers on the street, which I've just spoken about. We've got the street preaching on a soapbox, yelling out or using a megaphone. The good ones talk about the love of God. The, the, the bad ones just talk about turning and burning. We've got the Big Ten evangelism, where the gifted evangelist comes and preaches. You'll probably remember Billy Graham coming, for those who are a little bit more senior in the church, coming to Melbourne and 100,000 people flocking into the MCG and it had such an incredible impact as people put their faith in Christ. Or you might go to the youth rallies and the youth pastor gives a a message and people respond at a youth rally. You've got the door-to-door kind of evangelism, which has kind of been ruined, hasn't it, by the Jehovah's Witnesses and by, you know, the power companies and the solar panel companies and, and the punks that knock on your door because they just want to come back later and rob the joint. Um, that's why we recently got a bull terrier. I figure they can have the iPad and I'll keep their leg and that's a pretty good trade. But you'll notice that all these methods that we've often seen in the, in the past are bent towards those who are gifted evangelists, which is really the vast minority. These people are a, a great gift to the church. Those who are gifted in evangelism, we need to find ways to release them, to go and share the gospel and, and win people to Christ. But for the rest of us, the vast majority, we need to ask the question, how do we go about sharing the gospel? Peter was writing this letter to a culture that was not dissimilar to ours. Christianity was not seen as important or influential, but rather as something on the fringe of society, in the margins Uh, We're not there yet, but we're heading that way, where Christianity is being pushed further and further onto the margins. But we shouldn't fear that. As I said a few weeks ago, Christianity has always thrived on the margins. It's always grown in the face of opposition. It's always flourished um, in persecution. And so we should be embracing our current environment as a great um, opportunity to be on mission. And so the passage written to these people gives some great keys Um, even for those who don't see themselves as gifted evangelists, and it was relevant for them and it's relevant for us. And it breaks down some of the barriers that may stop us from sharing about Jesus. This week I pondered what barriers may exist for, for many of us when it comes to sharing our faith. And there were four main ones that I could think of. The first one we've already mentioned, that we don't see ourselves as gifted evangelists, and so we just don't evangelize at all. The second one is a fear of people. Uh, we, we tend to be worried about what people will think. 
if they know we're Christians? What if we get rejected? Will we be persecuted? Will people give us a hard time? Will they avoid us? Will we lose friends? What will my boss think? Will he think different of me? Will it affect my career? And so we have this fear of people. The third one I could think of was low self-confidence. When we don't get our identity from Christ, who says that in him we're more than conquerors, that with him we can do all things, that we are forgiven and saved and cherished and dearly loved. That's who we are in Christ. And yet so often we don't draw our identity from there. We draw it from our own insecurities. And so we think, oh, I'm hopeless. I'm dumb. I could never be used by God. I've made too many mistakes. I'll never amount to anything. My life's a mess. People would never listen to someone like me. And so low self-confidence can be a barrier between us and sharing the gospel. The last one I thought of is a lack of knowledge. When we just think, well, I just don't know my Bible very well. What if people ask me about the dinosaurs or evolution or why God allows suffering? I don't have all the answers, so it would be better just not to try. And so these are some of the obstacles that stop us from sharing the gospel with others. And these are legitimate barriers. And perhaps today you can identify with one or more of these barriers. But one of the things I love about God's word is it's just so profoundly practical. This letter was a real letter written to real people who were probably feeling very similar things to the things that we are currently feeling. These people would have no doubt been full of fear. They were persecuted so badly that they'd been scattered throughout the provinces of Rome, displaced from their homes, separated from their friends and their family, constantly looking over their shoulders, worrying about what's going to happen. Not only would they be fearful, they would have been people who would have had low self-confidence at times. They probably had doubts. If God is for us, why are we running for our lives? Why are we on the margins of society? Why are we outcasts and rejects and nobodies? I'm sure at times they may have felt like they lacked knowledge. When they looked at the world around them, many of these people were new Christians and the worldview they held was not a commonly held one. And so perhaps they thought, how could we stand strong in the face of such opposition with people who seem to be so much more confident than we are? I think all of us can connect with these things in one way or another. And so Peter's letter of advice to them is still so incredibly relevant for us today. And I think in this passage, he addresses many of those things that can often be obstacles for us. First of all, we see in this section that fear is likely to have been a huge issue. Uh, We worry about our reputation here in Australia. What will people think of us? But these people were worried for their very lives. And in verse 13, the passage today started with these words. It says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, You are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. A few weeks ago, I was at a breakfast with a guy called John Dixon. And he was speaking at the breakfast. Uh, John Dixon is a, he leads an organization called the Center of Public Christianity based in New South Wales. He's a well-known and respected Christian researcher and also public figure. And when there's a controversial issue that needs to be discussed uh, on, a, on a TV program and they're looking for the, I guess, a token Christian view, they often call on John Dixon to come in and he'll share his view um, with people on the TV program. And so he spoke at the breakfast and that was really insightful. And afterwards he conducted a time of Q&A. And in the Q&A, one guy lifted up his hand and he said, John, I've got a question for you. And the question was, How do you remain confident when you go into a situation where you have to share your view and represent Christ, 
But most of the people you're sharing with don't agree, strongly oppose you, or even ridicule you for your faith. John's answer was so simple. It was from this passage, and yet for me, it was so incredibly profound. He said, when I walk into a room, I walk into the room and I know that Christ is Lord. And he's Lord of every room that I'll ever walk into. And that gives me great confidence. I love that. I can walk into a room and just know that it doesn't matter what people think or what they say or how much they argue or whatever. I just know that Christ is Lord. And so if I just share the gospel, I know that not everyone will receive that and accept that, but I just know that I can be confident because Christ is Lord. Now, we often say that Jesus is Lord. We say it with our mouths. But if we say Jesus is Lord, and we're more concerned about what people think, who's Lord in our lives? Is it Jesus or is it people? Because it seems to me that it's people. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, Jesus is Lord and what we think of people is here or, or Jesus is down here. Either way... We're seeing people as more important. But I love what he said, that Jesus is Lord. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's not only the one that created all things, but he's sustaining all things. He's the Almighty God. He's the Savior of our souls. He's not only with us and for us, but he lives within us. He's the one we look to. He's the one we live for. He's the one that one day we'll stand before and give an account for our lives. And so what Jesus thinks of us should be more important than what people think of us every single day of the week. In your hearts, revere Jesus as Lord. But even if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but revere him as Lord. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Psalm 118, verse 6 says, the Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. Galatians 1.10, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Peter's advice to overcome fear is to remind ourselves that Christ is Lord in every situation. I think verse 15 is just an incredible verse for evangelism. It says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared. Cybran was talking about this before. To give an answer to everyone who asks you. To give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. If we lived out this, model of evangelism, I think would be so much more effective. And I think Cybrand's story before really demonstrated a good example of that. And I love what Peter says at the start. He says, always be prepared to give an answer. Always be prepared. VCE exams are fast approaching. I don't want to freak anyone out. Um, VCE exams are coming. And for those that are going to sit exams, either at school or in university, you'll know that, you know that it's going to be a stressful time. And if you want to succeed, you know what's going to be involved. It's going to take a deliberate effort to study the material, to learn the material, and you know that it's going to involve hours of study. But if you're committed to that, it will prepare you as well as possible to answer the questions that you're going to get asked on the exam paper. It doesn't mean that everyone who studies will get it all right, but it will prepare you as best as you can possibly be prepared. Now, if you turn up to the exam and expect to do well, but you haven't done any study whatsoever 
there's a good chance that you won't do well. In fact, there's a good chance that you will probably fail. Most people leading up to an exam will put in the hard work and it's very rare that people will say, I'm not going to bother to show up to the exam because I can't be bothered studying. Most people will understand that to succeed you have to put in the hard work of preparation. And I think it's very similar when it comes to evangelism. When it comes to evangelism, we often set ourselves up to fail because we don't take the time to read, to study, to learn and to understand God's word. This book is incredible. It's not like a textbook for an exam. It's alive. It's active. It'll change your life. When you put it in, God will bring it out when it needs to come out. God's word will not only transform your life, but it will equip you to share your faith. And so we need to be people who are dedicated to God's word every day. And as we do, it's incredible what God will do through it in our lives. But we also need to be people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. John chapter 4 verse 24 says, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The two greatest resources we've ever been given to share the gospel are God's word and the Holy Spirit. Now, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I used to drive a hotted up HZ Holden Premier wagon, completely resprayed in a burgundy pearl colour paint, reupholstered inside, uh, mag wheels, a work 308 engine. It was my pride and joy in the ultimate tradie car until I found out the tradies didn't care what they dragged past your car and they kept scratching it, which really annoyed me. But I remember going to trade school and I'd come out of trade school and there'd be a group of people gathered around just looking at my car. It was an incredible car. Too good for the work site. And one of the things I loved about my car is that it was dual fuel, which meant that it ran predominantly on gas, but if it ran out, I could flip the switch and it would run on petrol. And so one day I was driving along and I noticed that my gas gauge was getting really low, but I didn't worry about it. I figured once it got too low, I'd just flick out a patch, petrol, it would kind of chug in and it would get me to my destination. And so that's what I did. As the gas got really low, I flicked it over, but I soon discovered one problem and the problem was that I hadn't put any petrol in the petrol tank. Because last time I'd used it, I just filled up in gas and I didn't fill up the petrol. And so in a, in a short while, my car conked out on the side of the road. When I drove my car, I needed to put in both gas and petrol. And if I didn't, it could stop. And I think evangelism is a little bit like that. We need to prepare ourselves by putting in God's word, but also be filled by God's spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us to be filled with the spirit. And it's a continuous, so we need to be filled over and over again. Each day we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to empower us and to help us to live for him and to share the gospel. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 disciples to be his witnesses. And it's a pretty scary time in history to go out and to witness for Christ. And he says to them, they're going to face many troubles and and accusations. They're going to be dragged before the courts. But he says something really incredible to them. He says, don't worry about what to say. Or how to say it. Because the Holy Spirit will speak through you and the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. You know, sorry Ben was sharing before and I can identify that. There's been many times where someone's asked me a question about faith. And and inside, uh, on the outside I'm calm. On the inside I'm freaking out. My heart's beating and I think, my goodness, what on earth do I say in this situation? Only uh, for a, a few seconds later to be saying something and I think to myself, that is far too clever for me. <laughs> and the only explanation I can give is that what I've put in at some stage, the Holy Spirit has brought out in a way that makes sense at the right time. 
And that's what evangelism needs. It needs us to put in God's word and to rely on his Holy Spirit so that we're always ready and prepared to give an answer. And, and I want to say one other thing on that, and that is this, that as Christians, we don't have to give an answer to every single question. And sometimes Christians, they get asked something and in order to look intelligent, they just give a dumb answer. And it doesn't make us look intelligent, it makes us look dumb. You'd be better off saying, I'm not sure. Let me go and find out. Or I'm just not sure. I mean, I love the fact that I don't have the answers for everything. I love the fact that God is so big and so infinite that I could never box him into a little box where I can say, I understand everything about God. And if I did, he wouldn't be worth following because I'd be bigger than him. And that's no good. I love the fact that, that his ways are higher than our ways, that he is so big and so infinite that, that my puny brain just cannot grasp everything that needs to be known about God. That's why Christianity is called faith. There's so much we need to step out and we need to put our faith in God. And so we don't have the answers for everything and so we shouldn't feel the pressure to know everything about everything. And so we can remove that obstacle when it comes to evangelism. And so he says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope you have to everyone who asks you. Now, we mentioned before a few different styles or methods of evangelism. And I said that they're all bent towards gifted evangelists. But something else you'll notice about all those methods is that they all involve us telling people. Tell, tell, tell. Speak, speak, speak. But there are a couple of methods that I didn't mention. And they are ways of evangelism that all of us can do, and I think in our post-Christian culture may even be the most effective. And they are service and friendship, serving and being friends with people. I'm more and more convinced in our culture that sacrificial serving and journeying with others through friendship are the most effective ways to gain access into people's lives and to share the gospel in word and also in deed. For many years, people have heard the gospel. We've lived in a Christian culture and we've been telling them about the about the gospel in our soapboxes or uh, knocking on doors, and, and that's been you know part of the course. People know that we've been a Christian culture, and you know they grew up in Sunday school. Their parents went to church, and so they've kind of heard it before, and they're kind of accepting of it. But in a pluralistic, individualistic culture that sees truth as relative, people don't want to just hear it anymore. They actually want to see it. For years we've just been telling people, but I believe that people also want to see it. Someone very wise once said that we have two ears and we have one mouth and that we should use it in that proportion. And I think that's a really effective thing to remember when it comes to evangelism as well. Of course we need to tell people, but we also need to listen to people. And the best way to listen to people is through friendship and through serving them in some way. Missiologist Michael Frost is very helpful in his teaching on evangelism. He says we need to adopt a posture of listening to the neighborhood or to the community or to the city to which we've been sent. If we move closely into intimate relationship with the neighborhood and we adopted a posture where we were listening, genuinely listening, wanting to know what it is they want or what they need, and we worked out ways to enflesh the gospel right under their very noses, it would make all the difference. Listen to your neighborhood. It is telling you how to evangelize. It is telling you how to heal them. It is telling you how to love them. Move into the neighborhood and listen meaningfully and powerfully. He goes on to say in his latest book, Surprise the World, that we should live questionable lives. Now, he doesn't mean dodgy lives, where people think, what are they hiding all the time? He means the kind of lives where people look at us and they see something so different that they're forced to ask questions. 
What is it that is different about these people? In other words, our lives should be so different in a good way, where we're quick to forgive, we're slow to anger, we're loving and generous and kind, that people will want to ask questions about why we're so different. I think this is why the Blessed Collective Van has been such an effective ministry so far, because we went to the local council and we said, what are the needs in this area? And they said, well, there's two real needs. There's many people that are struggling with poverty and a lack. They don't have food regularly. And the second need is there are many people moving into this area and they are isolated and they are lonely. And so as a church, we said, well, we can do something about those things. We can't solve all of those issues, but we can provide a meal two nights a week down at the park where a lot of these people gather. We can provide a place of friendship where we can sit and listen to them. And it's not surprising to see that in the last few months, we've had some great conversations as people have inquired about questionable lives that they see us living. And so through service and friendship, we've gained access to the lives of people that we would probably never have met otherwise. And I've got to say, church, it's not easy work. Evangelism is not easy work. It's hard to share. Uh, It takes time. It takes effort. Uh, Something like the van, you've got to pack up and set up. But let me tell you, it's worth it if one person comes to know Jesus. We've had people from there visit this church already. And it's so encouraging to know that as we sit and listen, as we serve and befriend people, that God opens up the opportunity for life-changing conversations. It works in a project such as the Blessed Collective, and it works in our friendships as we journey with people through the joys and through the sorrows of life. Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. Now, many Christians stop reading there. I'm going to finish with this last bit of this sentence because I think it's so important. You know, always be ready to give an answer for the hope you have. We know that, but the last bit's just as important. It says, do this with gentleness and respect. John Dixon talks about flexing the two muscles of conviction and compassion at the same time. I'm sorry if my muscles are distracting you today. But he talks about flexing those two muscles at the same time. And I think Christians are a lot like men. We don't seem to be able to multitask. We can only do one of those things at a time. And I've met many Christians that they flex the muscle of conviction, but they forget about the muscle of compassion. And they sit there and they argue and they get flustered and they spend their time trying to prove why they're right and others are wrong. And I've got to say that to this point in my life, I've never seen a Christian win an argument with a red face. In fact, what I ever, only ever see up until this point is that it usually reinforces what people already think of us, that we're self-righteous, judgmental, know-it-all jerks. And when we act that way, we just reinforce what they already think. And so some people convict, conviction muscle is flexed, but compassion muscle is not. And so we might outwit people with our intellect, but we lose them with our attitude. But other Christians, they flex the compassion muscle and they forget about the conviction muscle altogether. And what you end up with is this wishy-washy, watered-down version of the gospel that may care for people's physical and emotional needs but neglects the greatest need of all, that's relationship with God. And so they, they don't want to offend people, and so they sort of throw the Bible to one side, and we just want to be popular, and we want to be friends, and we want to be caring, but we don't have any convictions. And, and you know what they say? When we stand for nothing, we fall for everything. And so we need to be people who flex the muscle of conviction, but at the same time flex the muscle of compassion. The muscle of conviction is always being prepared to give an answer 
for the hope that we have, the muscle of compassion, is by doing it with gentleness and respect. Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let me finish with an illustration that I heard recently. A guy called Simon Smart shared this. He says, An encounter with a Christian should be like landing on a high jump mat. Last week I went to set up for the trivia night at the school and there was a high jump mat there. And so I ran and I jumped on it. And it was a beautiful feeling. And he says to encounter a Christian should be like landing on a high jump mat. That we are strong and substantial, not substantial, not weak and flimsy, but at the same time pleasant and enjoyable, not abrasive and cringy. I love that. When people meet us, it should be like landing on a high jump mat. Big and substantial, substantial but at the same time pleasant and enjoyable. Church, we have a great opportunity in our community to share the gospel, whether it's through public witnessing, knocking on someone's door, or whether it's journeying with our friends. We have the greatest message the world has ever heard, and as we prepare ourselves through the word and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, and as we represent Jesus with gentleness and respect, I believe God's going to use us to have a huge impact and to see many people come to know him.